Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of psychosis, gun violence, forced medication, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. UFO sightings, the Illuminati, JFK's real assassin. Conspiracy theories are nothing new. The reason for their popularity? A made-up narrative can be far more enticing than truth. But unfortunately for some, it's far more dangerous too. Enter Chester Leo Posby, a hearing-impaired retiree driven to violence by his own suspicions. But he wasn't calling out secret government organizations nor warning of world domination machine makers. No, Posby's conspiracy was a bit more myopic. See, most conspiracy theorists can be found skulking in dark bedrooms, eyes glued to a Reddit thread, sifting through clues of conspiring villains. But Posby's subjects didn't just exist behind a computer screen. He was convinced that his own ear doctors were planning a deadly brain operation that they'd targeted him in some sick, money-grabbing scheme. And he would stop at nothing to foil their plot. This is Medical Murder's Killer Patients, a Spotify original from Parcast. Most doctors uphold the Hippocratic Oath, swearing they will do no harm. However, there is no such oath for their patients. And while healthcare professionals are usually the criminals on this show, sometimes it's the patients who abuse their power. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to assist Alistair with some medical insight into our case of Chester Leo Posby. The story examines the vulnerability of physicians in opening up their doors to the public. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode in our four-part series, Killer Patients. We're examining four different crimes and the many reasons killers might target medical professionals. Today, we're covering the murder of Dr. John Kemink, an ear, nose, and throat doctor who led the way in applying cochlear implant technology to children. In June 1992, he was fatally shot by his patient Chester Leo Posby. Like last week's killer, Posby believed he was the victim of a botched procedure and set out on a misguided quest for revenge. Only in this case, Posby saw his physician as a crooked player in a wicked act of sabotage. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? 
Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In late March 1994, 70-year-old Chester Leo Posby stood at a courtroom podium looking out at a jury that needed answers. They wanted to know how he'd landed himself there, some sort of explanation for what he'd done. Unfortunately, what Posby said next offered them little. Dr. Kemink was setting me up for the hatchet man, Posby insisted. The hatchet man was waiting for me. Without knowing much about the case, the statement sounds preposterous, but the jury had the full story and still found it perplexing. Perhaps some wondered behind poker faces if Posby had always been so unhinged. And if he hadn't, what was it that turned Chester Leo Posby from a retired car salesman to a murderer? To answer that, we'll have to turn the clock back some four years. The story begins in spring 1990, amid the quiet suburbia of Michigan's Clinton Township. 66-year-old Chester Leo Posby headed to his mailbox like he would any other day. Except on this particular day, he discovered a coupon for a free hearing checkup. It was no winning lottery ticket, but for Posby, any good news likely added some spice to his dreary life. And this specific opportunity meant he'd have a chance to talk to people, something Posby didn't do much. See, Posby was a bit of a recluse in the way that every neighborhood has their token Scrooge, the town pariah, the grumpy loner that kids avoid. In Clinton Township, Posby occupied that role and it wasn't hard to see why he had a chip on his shoulder. Some 24 years prior, he divorced his first wife, who was now dead. He'd since fallen out of contact with their two children, and while he'd found a new family in his second wife and stepchild, so he wasn't entirely alone, he likely held regrets about his past. Regrets he couldn't overcome in his waking life. It wasn't like he had a job to escape in. He'd long since retired from selling cars. Little seemed to be on the horizon for Posby. So when he got the offer in the mail, he might just have relished the chance to make some sort of improvement to his health, to do something meaningful for himself. Or perhaps his ears just weren't what they once were. We can't know for sure. In fact, Little is known about Posby's hearing prior to 1990, but we do know that at some point that year, he did redeem the coupon. He went in for a visit to the University of Michigan's medical clinic. Now it's unclear what occurred at that first hearing appointment, but we can speculate with the help of Dr. Kipper. Thanks, Alistair. These appointments will pretty much be the same across the board, regardless of someone's age. Hearing evaluations will start with patients breaking down a history of their hearing, any concerns they may have, and any other related health issues. These could include things like infection or even some relevant physical trauma or past injury. 
After this dialogue, a patient's ears are checked for any blockages that may be affecting their hearing, like a chunk of wax, for instance. Once this brief physical exam is out of the way, a person may be recommended to undergo an audiogram, depending on the severity of their hearing loss. This is a standard hearing test that gauges someone's sensitivity to volume, which is measured in decibels and pitch, and is identified in hertz. The exam is painless, only takes about 30 minutes, and requires wearing headphones, so the sensitivity of each ear can be isolated. During the test, patients are expected to press a button whenever they hear a sound delivered from the test conductor, and afterwards, these results are reviewed. If Posby had any notable hearing problems, which wouldn't really be surprising given his age at the time, he may have gotten a recommendation for a hearing aid or some sort of corrective procedure. Since we have no baseline for what Posby's hearing was like back in 1990, it's hard to say just what happened next. But apparently, his ears were bad enough to warrant follow-up appointments. One of them was with Dr. Kemink, a revered specialist in the field of otolaryngology. In layman's terms, that's an ear, nose, and throat specialist, also referred to as an ENT. For clarity, we'll refer to Dr. Kemink as an ENT from here on out. And he was a good one. Dr. Kemink wasn't just respected in his field, he'd earned himself a title as a pioneer in the world of medicine. After studying at the University of Michigan and University of California at San Francisco, Dr. Kemink returned to the University of Michigan to join their ENT department. If that wasn't enough, he also authored over 100 scholarly publications and even edited a textbook. But perhaps most notable among his accomplishments was his work with cochlear implants, a device that restores partial hearing in people with hearing loss. Cochlear implants allow the hearing impaired to communicate with people who don't know sign language, which is life-changing. He helped make the device available to children and between 1986 and 1992 had successfully operated on at least 45 children to give them cochlear implants. Child Magazine named him among the top 10 pediatric specialists in the nation. Dr. Kemmock was a really impressive doctor that I personally have great respect for, and I sadly remember hearing about his case while it was going on. As the director of UM's cochlear implant program, he was actually one of the first doctors in the state of Michigan to perform a cochlear implant procedure. His prowess as a surgeon was only matched by his character and commitment as a doctor. As point of reference, when the cochlear implant program was just getting started, Michigan insurance companies were largely unwilling to cover surgical expenses. This not only inspired Dr. Kemick to hold fundraisers for his young patients, but he also often waived his own surgery fees. This was a good guy, Alistair. It's really a shame. It's also very impressive that he was willing to operate on children at a time when other doctors were squeamish about it. Not only do kids have smaller anatomy and ear canals that require more precision, they also often have intensely nervous parents that need constant reassuring. In life, Dr. Kemick clearly established himself as an expert in his field, and this was evident by his boundary-pushing, game-changing surgical expertise. In the realm of ear doctors, Dr. Kemick was as bright as they come. 
so when Posby came to him, it was likely with a certain trust. After a brief glimpse, Dr. Kemink referred him to other ENT specialists for treatment. But rather than fix Posby's hearing, they allegedly punctured his eardrum. Although it's uncommon, ear doctors do use certain tools that can damage the eardrum if too much pressure is applied. One example here is the otoscope, which is an instrument that shoots a beam of light, allowing us to observe the ear canal and eardrum. If an otoscope was inserted too deeply or with too much force, it could potentially tear or puncture the eardrum, which is a pretty sensitive membrane. Another potentially dangerous tool is a curette, which is a long, thin instrument used to scoop wax out of the ear canal. Something like this could obviously cause some harm. There's also a possibility that Posby already had a minor tear in his eardrum that was worsened by some medical apparatus during his appointment. These small ruptures usually heal in a matter of weeks without treatment and can be caused by things like infection, being too aggressive with a Q-tip, or extremely loud blasts of noise, resulting in what's known as acoustic trauma. If this were the case, Posby could have been experiencing symptoms like hearing problems, difficulty balancing, ear pain, or tinnitus, which is perceived as a ringing in the ears. If he didn't have any of these symptoms prior to his ENT visit, he certainly would have after if they did in fact wound him or if they made his existing eardrum perforation worse. A punctured eardrum is a serious issue if the injury is significant enough and it can lead to some real health concerns down the line if it's not taken care of. Posby couldn't believe his poor luck. He tried to take care of himself, and somehow his hearing had only gotten worse. According to his own accounts, it's fair to say he was experiencing some of the more unpleasant symptoms of a punctured eardrum too. Determined to fix it, Posby scheduled an appointment with a prestigious ear doctor who'd seen him in the first place, Dr. John Kemink. Only this time, he didn't want Kemink's referral. Posby wanted Dr. Kemink to treat him personally. Coming up, Posby's hope rapidly declines and a conspiracy theory is born. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1990, 66-year-old Chester Leo Posby went to the doctor's office for a free hearing checkup. This led to a follow-up with Dr. John Kemink, 
who referred him to additional specialists. At some point during his course of treatment, Posby reportedly wound up with a punctured eardrum. Though it's unclear if there had been pre-existing damage in his ear before that, Posby was angry by his worsened condition. He likely suffered from both hearing loss and severe discomfort. Not only would the world around him have been more muffled, he may have also experienced frequent headaches, vertigo, nausea, and even tinnitus, or ringing in the ears. These symptoms changed his life for the worst. Understandably, he wasn't eager to return to the doctors who had complicated his life. So he returned to his initial specialist, Dr. John Kemink. Perhaps he hoped Dr. Kemink would rectify the situation free of charge since his referral had been so detrimental. If it's free treatment he wanted, Dr. Kemick certainly didn't owe it to him, even if his referral had left Posby in worse health. Depending on his insurance, Posby probably had to pay for some or all of his care out of pocket. It's a shame that his condition had allegedly worsened after the doctor's appointment, but this didn't warrant consequences for the referring doctor. Dr. Kemick would have had an ethical obligation to continue assisting Posby if he sought further advice, but apart from that, he didn't have any responsibility to him. He definitely didn't have any legal liability here. Scenarios like this can undeniably result in anger or resentful feelings and usually end up in broken doctor-patient relationships, as well as tarnished connections between healthcare professionals. When looking at this, there's an interesting association to our last case, where the patient perceived that a referring doctor held some responsibility for their later health problems. But unlike Stanwood Elkus, Chester Posby's injury wasn't his own fault. It seems there actually had been an error. Posby's eardrum was punctured at some point. But something else was going on too. Posby claimed that his ear pain had worsened, and with it, he'd begun to lose his balance. Though he could still walk decently, he felt unsteady, which hindered everyday activities. His neighbors later reported that while Posby had previously done well in the occasional game of horseshoe, he was no longer proficient at it. His aim had been affected. Sometime between late 1990 and 1991, Posby received an explanation. According to an article from the Detroit Free Press in 1992, Posby had been getting treatment for an inner ear imbalance. This isn't an uncommon problem when it comes to a punctured eardrum. The body's sense of balance is reliant upon signals transmitted to the brain, specifically from the eyes, leg muscles, and the inner ear. Inner ear-related imbalances can result from damage to key structures in the ear, like the eardrum, cochlea, ossicles, or vestibular nerve. In essence, structures within the inner ear work with gravity to communicate a sense of bodily orientation. For example, when people move their heads, their inner ear interprets gravitational signals and relay them to the rest of their body's sensory systems. These commingling systems ultimately help us maintain and control balance while at rest or in motion. When damage to the ear's interior occurs, save from a punctured eardrum, the resulting inner ear injury is something that often creates big problems. 
This specific trauma usually results in vertigo, which is a dizzying sensation of motion that can cause nausea, vomiting, anxiety, and of course, injuries from a trip or fall. To treat the vertigo, Posby really would have needed to get his underlying ear injury taken care of. This is especially true because if left unattended, any adverse symptoms would most likely worsen with time. Posby wasn't keen on taking any invasive avenues for treatment. He opted instead to try out physical therapy to improve his balance issues. Once Posby got his specific movement recommendations, which he was to practice daily, he confronted a different problem. The exercises required a partner, but his second wife and stepchild had recently moved out. He lived alone. And being that he was the town's Scrooge, there wasn't exactly an ample supply of willing friends Posby could ask to help him. After some thought, he selected a neighbor he didn't know very well, 37-year-old Jim Farchione. One day, in late 1991, Posby knocked on the man's door. Jim was surprised. He hadn't been expecting company. He didn't even know his visitor's name. But 68-year-old Chester Posby quickly introduced himself and explained that he needed help. I'll show you what I need done, Posby said to Jim. The compassionate neighbor he was, Jim agreed. And for nearly a month, Jim saw Posby almost every day for the medically assigned exercises. It went like this. Jim would face Posby and press his hands against the old man's shoulders. In response, Posby would press back with the goal of maintaining his balance. Simple enough. And it was likely intended to be, Alistair. For a physical limitation, as upsetting as this imbalance, Posby's physical therapist probably didn't want to assign him anything too rigorous. This specific exercise, recommended by the physical therapist, would have likely helped Posby ensure his postural stability and benefited his core and upper extremities. This type of person-to-person therapy also would have indirectly helped stabilize his gaze, which is crucial because people rely heavily on good eyesight for their balance. It would have developed and reinforced his eyes' natural balancing capabilities, and this is really a big point in all of this. Ultimately, physical therapy allows for the strengthening of other bodily systems that regulate equilibrium, which add additional support for those compromised areas. It also would have created some natural regeneration in his inner ear. PT on its own can be really helpful for those with relatively mild auditory-induced balancing issues, and it can be very helpful in restoring proprioception, which is the awareness of the position and movement of the body. Posby probably saw some improvement from the physical therapy, but it likely wasn't going to be enough. Posby never shared the specifics of his treatment with Jim, but during this time, Posby was presumably seeking second opinions from several ear doctors, one of which revealed just how life-altering the ear condition would eventually become. According to Posby, one physician told him, quote, there will come a time when you won't be able to walk. Unwilling to accept this fate, Posby decided he'd return to Dr. Kemink for further advice. The physical therapy exercises weren't enough. 
He was regularly experiencing ear pain, had lost much of his mobility, and feared he'd never feel truly normal again. He'd later refer to his condition as torture. However, Dr. Kemmink's response did little to comfort him. During one of Posby's final visits to the ENT in spring 1992, it appears that 42-year-old Dr. Kemmink advised 68-year-old Posby that surgery would be his best option. Conveniently, Dr. Kemmink had taken on a fellowship in neurotology and skull-based surgery in the past, which would allow him to be Posby's surgeon. But this didn't comfort Posby. An invasive procedure was the last thing he wanted, especially since this surgery required him to be unconscious. He'd have to put his full trust in Dr. Kemmink. While we can't know for sure, it's fair to speculate that this was when the wheels began churning in Posby's brain. When Posby reflected on his medical history over the past two or three years, it was easy for him to pinpoint the moment where everything had gone south. The punctured eardrum. And it seems one of the doctors he thought was responsible for this was another ENT specialist he'd been referred to named Dr. Proctor. Had Dr. Kemink never sent him to Dr. Proctor, he wouldn't have had to spend over two years trying to restore the hearing he'd initially had. While he faulted Dr. Proctor's negligence, it was Dr. Kemink who had financially profited, charging Posby for appointment after appointment. And with this new suggestion of surgery, Posby spun up a convoluted conspiracy theory. Perhaps this had been Dr. Kemmink's goal all along, to render Posby's hearing so poor that he'd have no choice but to go under the knife. In his mind, Dr. Kemmink had conspired with Dr. Proctor for this very goal. Then, once in the operating room, Posby would be put under. Posby reasoned that Dr. Kemmink would make it look like he'd worked on Posby's ear, but intentionally kill him in the process. Since Dr. Kemink was good at his job, no one would doubt his claims that Posby had just been too old to withstand the procedure. Ear surgeries were serious undertakings that could involve high risk after all. Dr. Kemink could easily convince people that Posby's death was little more than a tragic accident. Finally, doctors Kemink and Proctor would silently pocket his cash and move on to their next victim. The whole plot was far-fetched. Pretty out there indeed. While this show does often remind us that malpractice is alive and well, two or more years of setup time would be a lengthy plot for any doctor hoping to profit off a single patient. Aside from the obvious do-no-harm protocol that every healthcare professional is expected to honor, Posby's theory about these doctors' intentions has some pretty big blind spots. For one, there are much better scams doctors could theoretically pull on their patients without the risk of malpractice issues and the reputational damage that can come from a patient's death. 
One aggravating example is when doctors repeatedly sell their patients on unnecessary minor surgeries. This is a horrible practice that does have some basis in reality, and it's a scheme some corrupt doctors advocate with great reward and little risk. Posby really loses me when he talks about his doctors killing him because the possible legal trouble is too great and it's hard to make a living on a dead patient. It just doesn't really make much sense. But that didn't stop Posby from spiraling as he continued to fixate on the two doctors that he blamed for his hearing problems and lack of mobility. The pain in his ear made it hard to forget. On June 18, 1992, Posby scheduled a follow-up appointment with Dr. Kemink. It's unclear why, given that Dr. Kemink had already told Posby that surgery was recommended, maybe Posby just wanted another chance to vent to his physician. More likely, he was working up the courage to exact revenge. See, Posby had got in his hands on a gun. At some point, he'd even brought it into one of his appointments with Dr. Kemink. But he hadn't used it. Not yet. It seems when Posby left that day, he hit his breaking point. Because he requested one final appointment with the doctor for June 25th, 1992. As a successful otolaryngologist, Dr. Kemink was a busy man. There was hardly any room on his schedule that day. But being the compassionate professional he was, he squeezed in an appointment for Chester Posby in a 30-minute afternoon time slot. Since the old man had been in to see him just one week prior, Dr. Kemink figured the pain must be excruciating for Posby to be back yet again. He probably hoped that this would be the visit where Posby finally agreed to the surgery that could fix his hearing once and for all. That couldn't have been further from Posby's intentions as he walked into the waiting room of the University of Michigan's Taubman Center. Shortly after, Posby headed into his appointment on the first floor of the medical clinic, poised to meet with Dr. Kemink. Then, the time came. 42-year-old Dr. Kemink, beloved specialist and father of two, walked into the exam room and looked straight down the barrel of a gun. Within seconds, a crashing sound emanated from the room, followed by the unmistakable bang of five or six loud gunshots. Then, unassumingly as he'd entered, Posby set down his gun and walked straight into the hall awaiting authorities. He may have been deluded, but he was under no illusion that he'd be escaping the consequences of his crime. And it almost seemed that part of him was even eager for his day in court where he could expose Dr. Kemmings and Dr. Proctor's evil plot once and for all. Coming up, Posby carries out a twisted plan to foil a plot that only existed in his mind. Now, back to the story. 
on the afternoon of June 25, 1992, 68-year-old Chester Leo Posby shot 42-year-old Dr. John Kemink four times. Patients and workers alike rushed down to the University of Michigan's Taubman Center where the attack had occurred. Within minutes, police were at the scene, searching for the assailant. It wasn't hard to find him. Apparently, Posby was walking down a hall near the exam room where he'd committed the crime. He didn't resist arrest. Meanwhile, a flurry of emergency responders and medical professionals already stationed in the clinic rushed to aid Kemink. Bullets had found their mark in his head, shoulder, and abdomen. And those staffers worked tirelessly to save their colleague, it was too late. Dr. John Kemink was pronounced dead. In the aftermath, his community was left shell-shocked. Dr. Kemink had been their leader. He'd spent years in the Taubman Center, winning appreciation and respect at the University of Michigan. There were students he'd mentored, faculty members he'd advised. They'd known him as a man with a lust for life, a great sense of humor, and a love for people. His wife and children, too, were devastated. And as crowds of people attended his funeral, they all wondered, did Dr. Kemming have enemies they didn't know about? Or was his killer just a crazed lunatic with a strange vendetta. Everyone wanted answers, and no one was more eager to provide them than the case investigators. While they had their culprit in custody, they had more digging to do. In the blood-splattered room, they found a 380 caliber Browning semi-automatic handgun. It was unmistakably the weapon that Posby had used to kill Dr. Kemink. At close range, it's unlikely anyone would survive a single direct shot from it, let alone four. With their murder weapon bagged, detectives searched for a motive. One look at Posby's medical record showed that he'd been Dr. Kemink's patient for more than two years, but nothing looked too out of the ordinary. Though, the hearing problems might suggest that Posby was dealing with some other neurological problems, which could potentially explain why he had acted out so violently. The inner ear and the brain are deeply related, and brain scans even suggest that hearing loss can contribute to a faster rate of cerebral atrophy. On top of this, the inner ear and brainstem are major components of the vestibular system, which is the body's mechanism for maintaining proprioception. In recent years, there's been a greater understanding of the strong link between the vestibular system and the limbic system, or the part of the brain involved in emotional and behavioral regulation. Because of this relationship between the vestibular and limbic systems, researchers have identified their influence on how we regulate our mood. This may have manifested by Posby's inability to control some of his behaviors and emotions. In addition, hearing problems and their resulting issues can produce immense stress, and this buildup of cortisol can be dangerous for someone with a pre-existing neurochemical imbalance. 
While it's tough to say whether hearing-related neurological issues influence Posby's decision to kill Kemink, it's definitely a believable theory. Authorities certainly seem to think he was mentally ill. In the following days, Posby was held under a suicide watch at the Washtenaw County Jail in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he would have to wait there until his preliminary legal evaluation, which was scheduled for July 8th. Posby's court-appointed attorney, Dan Besser, requested that a psychiatric examination be part of that. It remains unclear what was determined at that July 8th hearing, but the trial was set for just over a year later, September 1993. Unfortunately, shortly after it began, Posby's competence to stand trial was questioned. Again, the specifics remain unclear. Typically, when this occurs, however, it's because the defendant is incapable of understanding his crime or seems mentally unable to present a defense. So the trial was postponed and Posby was sent to the Center for Forensic Psychiatry where he was seen by clinician Sherry Hansen and Dr. William Yarick, among others. One doctor concluded that he suffered from paranoid persecutorial delusional disorder, which presents when a person cannot distinguish what is real from what is imagined. The primary symptom of this disorder is unshakable delusional beliefs, often about the hidden and evil motives of others. In Posby's case, those evil others were his doctors. To improve Posby's competency in court, Dr. William Yarick prescribed Posby perfenazine, an antipsychotic. While it couldn't guarantee Posby would be rid of his delusions, it could help his disordered thinking become more organized. Half a year later, in March 1994, 70-year-old Chester Posby returned to court for his trial. But matters were delayed yet again when Posby's defense team filed a pre-trial motion requesting that Posby be taken off his medication. They wanted to be able to demonstrate the way Posby thought when he wasn't on perfenazine, since he wasn't on the drug when he'd shot Dr. Kemink. If his medication made him act more sane, they felt he couldn't correctly present himself as insane while testifying. And since the murder had been proven, insanity was their only viable argument. To their dismay, the request was denied. Dr. Yarick testified that Posby's thinking would become delusional and disorganized within a matter of days. The prosecution argued that this would render him unable to properly assist in his defense since being unmedicated would likely cause Posby to act in an irrational manner. If he so much as shouted out or inappropriately interrupted court proceedings, his case could once again be delayed. This brought up a significant constitutional issue. The jury had a right to a speedy trial, and so did Posby. But defense lawyers worried that his medication would prevent the jury from understanding Posby's mental state at the time of the shooting. Unfortunately, they tried all they could. The judge elected to proceed with the trial, and Posby was forced to take his perfenazine. 
involuntary drug treatment is generally deemed a misuse of psychiatry. But this issue is a sticky one, especially since Posby's trial would be delayed if he wasn't medicated. I would actually argue that putting Posby on antipsychotics was the humane thing to do here. Furthermore, I think this is a concept a jury could wrap their heads around with relative ease. In my opinion, the trial was secondary to getting this man's psychosis under control. He clearly wasn't in a position to advocate for his own health care, and this was especially evident in that despite his legal culpability, he undoubtedly caused someone's death and was a danger to himself and those around him. I think it would have been unethical to leave Posby untreated given the circumstances, and in this case, I truly believe the right decision was made. As a result of his continuing medication, Posby wasn't nearly as excitable as he'd probably been the previous September. In late March 1994, 70-year-old Posby testified in a calm voice. If criminal acts had not been done to me, the killing would not have happened, Posby said. It was a scheme, a scam, a conspiracy for money. Dr. Kemink was setting me up for the hatchet man. The hatchet man was waiting for me. Dr. Kemink was setting me up for a brain operation. Posby evidently still believed that Dr. Kemink and Dr. Proctor had conspired to kill him, though it's somewhat unclear which one of them he deemed the hatchet man. The word hatchet typically refers to a small axe, something Dr. Kemink wouldn't need in order to conduct the operation on Posby's inner ear. Yet somehow, Posby had gotten it into his head that his alleged conspirators were something like scythe-carrying grim reapers. And while his words were ludicrous, Posby delivered them in an oddly monotone voice. He also specifically accused Dr. Proctor of damaging his balance nerve, while claiming that Dr. Kemink had betrayed him by referring him to Dr. Proctor. He felt it was his duty to bring this conspiracy to light in efforts to save future patients from deadly brain surgeries. At that moment, Posby's intentions seemed almost altruistic. He'd wanted to protect others. But those presumptions were based in delusion. During the course of the trial, four doctors came to the stand for the defense, three of whom agreed that Posby did in fact have some form of a delusional disorder. They were likely trying to convince the jury that Posby was legally insane at the time of the shooting and therefore not criminally responsible. Meanwhile, a doctor hired to testify for the prosecution argued that while Posby may have been mentally ill, this didn't prevent him from appreciating the wrongfulness of his conduct. Posby was also clearly aware that murder was unlawful. He'd said so himself in his testimony. Things weren't looking good for the defense. So yet again, Posby's lawyers placed a request for Posby to be taken off his medication, this time for only a three-day period during which he would testify. He would stop taking it on a Friday, speak at the stand on Monday, then immediately began taking the antipsychotic once again. This wasn't a request to be taken lightly. 
For a person with delusions like Posby, deviation from a regular medication schedule can be very regressive. Like other psych medications, antipsychotics increasingly accumulate in the body's tissues and bloodstream over time. The longer you've been taking the drug, the more metabolites you'll have in your body, and the longer it'll take to completely leave your system. The severity of someone's psychosis is also a factor here, and the worse their condition is, the faster it'll ultimately re-emerge after the medication is discontinued. Because Posby hadn't been receiving treatment for very long, his delusional thinking probably would have returned within a couple of days after stopping the perfenazine. Again, the request was denied. Ultimately, 70-year-old Chester Leo Posby was found guilty but mentally ill of first-degree murder. This verdict option allows a jury to find a defendant guilty of an offense while formally acknowledging that the accused has a mental illness. Unlike not guilty by reason of insanity, this classification bears no effect on sentencing. In the state of Michigan, the guilty but mentally ill verdict meant life in prison for Posby. But Posby wouldn't accept this. His lawyers argued that forcing him to remain medicated throughout the trial interfered with the jury's perception of and prejudice against him. They hadn't understood his true mental state. The defense took the case to Michigan's Court of Appeals and, in 1997, it reversed the guilty conviction. They deemed the judge's ruling to not let Posby be taken off his medication for a requested three days as unconstitutional since it hindered Posby's ability to accurately defend himself. As a result, the case would have to be retried. But before the case could be heard again in court, 74-year-old Chester Posby died. It was a sudden anticlimactic end. I think it's definitely possible that Posby would have been deemed not guilty by reason of insanity in a new trial. His motives really seem to be centered around delusional thinking, and it's plausible that his health problems were exacerbating his mental illness before and during the crime. This was also a time in the United States when perceptions of mental illness were evolving and becoming more enlightened, so this might have fueled the not guilty due to insanity outcome. Posby's case is tragic, especially since his hearing and neurological problems may have been worsened by a medical professional. It's hard not to wonder what Posby and Kemink's lives would be like now if Posby's mental illness had been recognized earlier in his life. While many conspiracy theories remain open-ended mysteries floating in the ether to haunt the ever-curious, it's fair to say Posby's theory has been debunked. Tragically, it's highly possible that if he'd simply confided his perception to a loved one, he could have found help before he acted on it. But like all convoluted tales, Posby's explanation of events thrived in the dark. His isolated, unhealthy mind was the perfect environment for falsehoods to fester and, gone unseen, they turned him against one of the only people in the world who likely could have helped him. 
Dr. Kemming had brought cochlear implants to hearing-impaired children and had published studies on acoustic neuroma, vestibular neuritis, and vertigo, among other ailments. The sad irony is, had he never been murdered, he may very well have figured out how to improve Posby's condition. It's an awful thing to consider what innovations were robbed from the world as a result of Cummings' murder. He unmistakably had a passion for his work, advocated for many children, and there's no doubt that if he was still alive, he'd be working tirelessly to further impact his field. Unfortunately, his smarts and compassion couldn't prevent a deranged person from taking his life. In the end, Dr. Kemmick's fate was decided by a fictional theory that developed into a deadly motive. Yet in this case, the facts are more damning than fiction. Chester Posby struggled with an untreated mental health condition, and it's possible he'd have hurt someone even had he never gone in for that hearing checkup. Like most conspiracy theorists, Chester Posby was driven by the sense that he'd lost something and a fear that even more would be taken from him. Yet, much like Stanwood Elkus, Chester Posby refused a treatment that could have healed him, instead choosing to follow his own misguided ideology. Dr. Kemink was no mad scientist determined to rob Posby blind he was a brilliant doctor shot four times with no remorse. A tragic reality his loved ones must face. Meanwhile, reality was lost on Posby. In March 1994, he told the court, I never had a delusion. Reminding us just how convincing a conspiracy theory can be. Next week on Medical Murders, we continue our four-part series on killer patients. While the next crime also involves misguided revenge, next week's killer didn't meet his victim the way our first two subjects did. He was in excellent health. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much, Alistair. For more information, among the many sources we used, we found Find Law's People v. Posby court summary extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Bruce Katovich, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. 
Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 